0: I'd like to invite you to remain standing as you're able. And if you'll follow after me, we'll join in what is often called the pledge of allegiance of God's people, uh, found in what Jesus called the great commandment. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Had. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your, and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. The scripture this morning is found in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, as it will be all summer. It is in the fourth um, uh, chapter, verses 14 through 17. I'm a little slow on the uptake this morning, so I didn't realize it was uh, printed on the front page of your bulletin. Uh, so don't be disturbed. My version is just slightly uh, different than the one, but but not enough to uh, change it. I do not write you uh, to... Uh, I do not write to shame you, but to correct you, my dear children, for though you may have 10,000 guardians in Christ Jesus, you do not have many fathers, and I have become your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. I am sending you Timothy, my own dear child, who is faithful to the gospel, and he will show you my way of life in Christ Jesus, a way which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. It was after another national calamity and national crisis that shortly after the death of Paul, the rabbinical leaders who lived still in Israel gathered together. They had, as a nation, endured uh, the ravages of the Assyrian conquest 700 years before Jesus. They had endured, about 140 years later, the Babylonians coming in, destroying the temple, and carting them off into slavery. And now they had dealt with Roman occupation for over 100 years, and then the Romans had destroyed the temple again, a temple that had been rebuilt Under King Herod. And so as they gathered some miles away on the coast away from Jerusalem, the leaders of the Jews, of God's people, began to debate, and one of the questions they debated was this Who are the protectors of the city? Having watched Jerusalem get destroyed not in in their lifetime and then also at other periods in their nation's history, they asked the question, Who are the protectors of the city? And the answer they gave may surprise you. These people of God gave the answer, the protectors of the city are the ones who teach the children. It has been argued by biblical scholars that one of the ways to look at the first five books of the Bible, often called the Pentateuch or Torah, is that the chief audience for that book are children. Because you'll find references to uh, do these things so your children will be blessed. You'll find references to make sure the children know about certain things. And then, of course, at the Passover, the youngest child at the table asks the question, why is this night different from every other night? It is clear that uh, God's people were organized in Israel around the next generation and the future generation. In fact, an argument uh, can be made that uh, 3,500 years ago, uh, Pharaoh was on the rise and was strong, and the people called the Jews were enslaved, and then 3,500 years later, there's no more Pharaoh, and many of his buildings now are beginning to crumble And yet the Jews remain strong and have their own nation. And if you were to ask what the difference was between those two people, one who was so powerful 3,500 years ago and one who was slaves, one of the ways to answer it might be this. Pharaoh worried about buildings and Moses worried about children. Pharaoh was concerned with making a name for himself so he would live on in death. And Moses was concern to teach the children how to live. I tell you all this because from time to time in our world and in our nation, we come to another crisis moment, and often, and often questions are raised. And so, like me, uh, perhaps many of you woke up uh, to the horror last Sunday morning of what had happened at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando and uh, like me, you probably began to ask questions, and we can see our nation beginning to ask questions. Who's responsible? Was anyone else responsible? Who's to blame? What could have been done differently? What signs did we miss? What rules should we change? And there's all sorts of debate going on, and that's a healthy debate. And so some of the suggestions are we've got to tighten our security, ask better questions, be more vigilant Others say we need to be better at arming ourselves. And others say we need to be better at disarming ourselves. And those are important questions. But I want to tell you that biblically, those aren't the important questions. Because biblically, I think the important questions were never about somebody else out there. What should they do? What should our government do? What should be changed out there? What about those people Biblically, the, always the most important questions in any crisis were, "What about us?" And if the rabbis of Paul's day were right in that the protectors of the cities are really those who mentor and raise the children, then maybe a more important question to ask in the midst of this tragedy is like, "Is this? What are we doing with our children? And how are we doing with our children? How are we doing with this present generation?" And our future citizens and leaders? And I think it's an important question, one Paul would have understood. It's interesting uh, that Paul said as he was talking to Corinth, which is a church that had many issues. Now, granted, they weren't as great as what happened last uh, Sunday morning and the middle of the night at that nightclub in Orlando, but they're very real issues. Clarence explained some of them last Sunday, and there's lots of debate and there's lots of division. And so Paul says, now look, I need to tell you, you've got lots of guardians. And the word guardian is a word for, um, uh, actually the same word with, with which we get the word pedagogue or pedagogy. Uh, so in other words, people that, that, there are lots of people who who teach you, and the word is like a, an educated slave who would walk you to school, maybe even take part in your education at school, and then get you home. But Paul says there's a difference between those who sort of teach And then those who are full-time in the mentoring. Those he called fathers. Fatherhood was very important. In the ancient Judaism, fathers had five specific duties according uh, to the ancient rabbis. The first one was to make sure their children are circumcised, are initiated in into the family of God, similar to what we do with baptism uh, this morning at 8.30 and 11.00 services. Another one was it was important to teach your child uh, the word of God and the ways of God. They used the word Torah to ex- ...to describe instruction. Third thing was to teach your child a craft... Teach your child a skill to teach your, make sure your child could do something productive for a living that would uh, build them confidence. Now, things have changed, of course, in the ancient world and, and in our in our world. In their world, you often did whatever your father and mother did, the family business, that's what you went into. Not everybody can do that in our day. As, as summer vacation is underway, I remember how jealous I used to be in high school and early in college. It was so hard for me to find a summer job and some of my best buddies, their families owned businesses so they just worked in the family business and got paid way more than minimum wage and every year i knew i was out of luck they were going to work for their family business and my father was an obstetrician and gynecologist and it just wasn't going to happen but teach a child a craft was the third one a fourth one was this may sound a little strange to our years: find a wife help set your child up for a healthy marriage and fifthly teach the child how they live, teach the child ethics, right from wrong. But what was interesting is that as they went along, they no longer limited it to to fathers and to mothers and to parents. And that's how Paul picks up on this when he says, you know, you've got lots of teachers, but you don't have many fathers. But I'm your father, and as far as we know, Paul didn't have any biological children he's talking about. One of the things they began to say is anytime you taught someone else the ways of God, you became their spiritual father or mother. And so Paul became the father to all of them because he was showing them the way of God in Christ. I say all of that to tell you this this morning. I think what we need in our day in this age are more people willing to show the next generation the way of life in Christ. More people willing to father and mother people who are not even their own children to ensure the next generation lives uh, in a different way than often what we've experienced in these last several months. So if you're willing to take on that challenge, I want to just make a few suggestions about the kind of fathering, the kind of mentoring uh, that we see in Paul and see if it could apply to our life. Now... First of all, women, you are not off the hook. Uh, eventually, rabbi became a title, my teacher, that uh, could be both for men and for women. That fathering can also be spiritual mothering. And, uh, and so it's for all of us. So let me pick out a few things from Paul. The first one is, I see this in a letter, that Paul realized the way to mentor was not through public shame. Corinth was a public honor shame town. And uh, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Uh, there was lots of boasting going on in Corinth. So you were doing one of two things in Corinth. You were bragging on yourself or you were putting somebody else down. And that's just how it was. That was the so-called honor-shame division. And shame basically means the most important thing is not what I do, but what my reputation is. So if I do wrong and don't get caught, then it's good. That works. In a shame culture, it's only what other people Know about you or think about you that count not who you really are and what you really do. But Paul texts us on and Paul said, look, I'm not writing to shame you. I just want to uh, admonish is one phrase, correct, warn. Uh, Another sense is the word just, I want to bring it to your mind is another way to say it in Greek. In other words, gently I want to coach you. And he does it privately um, in in that sense that it's just among This house church. And so uh, one of the things we need to do is that shame always uh, uh, picks on a person, not just for what they do, but for who they are, lowers their confidence, their value, sense of value, worth and self-esteem. That's not that's not how you mentor people. We do it with gentle encouragement. Second thing I think we need to learn from Paul is we do it, quite frankly, by example. Paul said, I urge you to imitate me or to follow my example. Um. Six times in the Corinthians letter, he will say what he does and tell them to follow his example. Now, in the old days, when I was in school, they used to say, well, Paul must have been a braggart. Paul sure had good self-esteem. And the answer now is no, none of those are true. Paul's a rabbi. And rabbis knew you always taught by example, that students learn much more watching you. So as you probably we've talked about before, if, if you were a rabbi and you had disciples and you went to the bathroom, they went with you. Because they wanted to be everywhere you were and there was a prayer that you said of thanksgiving for being able to go to the bathroom. Maybe you've been there and offered that prayer. And so they needed to hear it. So they followed you everywhere. It was an an example. Even non-Jews figured this out. Aristotle used to say the best way to become a good person, to learn to be a good person, is to follow a good person around. And so that was sort of the theory is uh, set an example uh, and And Let people follow your example, and that's how they're going to learn. The great uh, British statesman a few centuries ago, Edmund Burke, said the one school we all enroll in is the school of example. In other words, I may have gone to this school, and you may have gone to another school, but the one school we all had in common was the school of example. This past Friday, I had the privilege of taking <clears throat> my nephew and then my brother and sister-in-law uh, to the airport. Their, their son is going to college on the West Coast, and he has to enroll um, this week uh, for some summer activities. But I thought about it, thinking about Paul, and I said, you know, he is going to that school on the West Coast, but he has been in this school of his mother and father for 18 years. And that's the school that's going to count the most, the school of example. There are all sorts of theories about parenting, and you may have a theory about how you do it, and it might be different than mine. But I love what Brene Brown once said. She said the best way she thinks about parenting is be the kind of adult that you want your child to grow up and become. And I think the same is true with mentoring. Mentoring. Be the kind of mentor that you want these children to grow up and become. Example is such a powerful teacher. And so I have to say, as we debate whatever it is, Orlando, or we uh, debate um, issues of human sexuality, or we debate whatever it is we're debating, you need to know that it's not the stand that you take, but it's the way you take that stand that your kids and our kids are watching they watch the level of civility or lack of civility with which we deal with each other. And it's pretty amazing that we think we can deal with each other in such uncivil ways and have a civilized society about 20 years from now. That's, that's a real long shot because every one of us enrolls in the school of examples. So to remember that, that the people we mentor both intentionally and even unintentionally, they're watching us. Some of you may be old enough to remember. I I was a kid, but I remember it. It was a a political convention on a hot summer in Chicago years ago, 1968. And the protesters were yelling at the people going in to the convention. The whole world is watching. The whole world is watching. Now, maybe they were claiming too much. And we may or may not agree with the point they were trying to make, but there is a truth. That people are watching. That's just how, that's just how people learn. They learn by watching. So Paul says, "I'm going to try to. I'm an example. Follow me." Um, another thing I think that Paul knew is that if you're going to if you're going to mentor in some way, it's going to take time. The rabbis had a beautiful picture for mentoring or coaching or discipling. They said it was like water on a rock. I don't know if you've ever uh, uh, thought about this because you've got to watch something for a long time, but but years ago, you could pass by a rock every day and not see the change even though the water is coming. But if you came years later all of a sudden you would see the indentation made by the rock. And they said that mentoring and discipling is like that. It's just, it's just a repeated activity over time, time and time again, that begins to make the indentation into the life of another human being. And that's why Paul's sending Timothy. Paul knows he's only had 18 months, which has been long enough to get this group started, but just long enough to have them really messed up. They need some more. And so he said, I'm going to send you Timothy. And he did. Final thing I would just say about, um, about mentoring and, and leading the next generation is this. It's, it's a team sport. It's going to require all of us. When Paul writes to them, we talked about this two weeks ago. I think Clarence brought it up again last week. P- Paul has this letter and he uses the word y'all, more or less, in Greek. He knows that these letters and notes are going to everybody and that it's going to require everybody for people to grow as a Christian into disciples. It's going to be a team effort. David Brooks wrote an article, you may have seen it in the paper this week, columnist from the New York Times, and he talked about character and he said what we need with character is what he calls a moral ecosystem. And that is a system where all the parts support one another to lead to a certain kind of person who can live right and do the right thing. And Paul knew that. And so he knew that they had to do this in community. That was the beautiful thing about Bible school. As Natalie mentioned, 450 children at Bible school, but 150 more adults and 80 more youth. 230 to shape 450 because that's what it took. It was a team effort. We have a baptism coming up at 11 o'clock, and you know what will happen. The baptism. I'll take the child. I'll take one. Jackie will take one. We'll walk around the congregation. Yes, we want you to see the baby. But more importantly, it's like saying, this is a team effort. It's going to take all of us to do this. Just like Bible school. Just like baptism. Just like, you may have seen the announcements in the newsletter, needing people to help with youth someone perhaps to mentor a young couple's class. It requires all of us. I've got three kids. The youngest is in graduate school. But I am not finished my mentoring by a long shot. It's all of our duties. It's all of our opportunities to shape the next generation. And how will it work? Well, Paul poured himself into Timothy. And what we know about Timothy from tradition is Timothy moved to Ephesus, the most important city in the ancient world after Rome, with the largest community of Christians in the ancient world, and Timothy became their leader. Well, how did Timothy do with mentoring others? Well, we know this, that more than 100 years after Timothy got to Ephesus, Ephesus went from being 95% non-Christian, non-Jewish, to being 95% Christian. Timothy must have touched some lives. Well, how did those lives do? Well, look around. 2,000 years later, and we're still here. The thing about a mentor is they become the link from the past to the future. And in between, as we pass it on, the movement continues. What will our generation look like in 20 years? What will our church look like? By and large, the answer is not out there in some law that has to be enforced or made. Actually, the answer to that question is right in this room.